So I kept a uh, little diary of my thoughts uh, as we, in the days leading up to Hurricane Irma, thought I might share that with you this morning. Five days before the storm. I wonder if daycare is gonna be closed when I need to be writing my God's glory sermon. It was. Four days before the storm. I wonder if Amazon Prime will still deliver three cases of Propel Electrolyte water to my house before Sunday. P.S. Propel Electrolyte water is disgusting. It tastes like someone poured dirt into your water and then shook it up. But they gave it to me uh, via Amazon Prime four days before the hurricane, so it was fine. Uh, Three days before the storm. I should probably buy bread and peanut butter and jelly, but apparently every other person in East Orlando had this exact same idea because what I came home with were the last two bags of hot dog buns uh, and the jelly that you squeeze from like a bottle uh, upside down. Two days before the storm. Gosh, (laughs) I'm so glad that everyone I've ever met but who doesn't live in Florida is sending me so many helpful suggestions about how to deal with the hurricane. (laughs) How would I have known that scotch tape would hold my windows together in in hurricane hurricane force winds if it weren't for people sharing such profound life-saving advice on Facebook? One day before the storm. Should we fill our bathtub with water? Why do people do that? Does it... Does it hold the bathtub down if the roof comes off? What? We did it anyway. Day of the storm. I've spoken to my neighbors more in the last day than I have in the, in the past five years of living in this house. Night of the storm. Why didn't I think to pick up Benadryl like my friends whose children are now asleep on Facebook? <laughs> Don't judge me, Christians. And then in the midst of the storm, as I was huddled on a bed in the safest room in our house with my baby girl and kind of trying to protect her like my arms are gonna stop, you know, projectiles. Um, I just remember thinking, God, please just get us through this. Please just bring us through this night with or without a house, with or without power, with or without a bathtub. Just, just get us through. The vulnerability of laying there not knowing whether or not a, a tree was going to crash through our house was just... I can't remember the last time that I felt so helpless. My husband, on the other hand, true to character, made frequent trips outside to do what he called securing the house. Uh, But what I really believe was just an opportunity to tie himself to a treetop like Lieutenant Dan and shout insults at the storm. But I'd never seen anything like it. I'd never heard anything like it. it. It was like a train going by our window, just pounding on the plywood, howling past us. The day after, we drove to a friend's house who miraculously still had power, uh, and, and, and I saw this huge oak tree that had been completely uprooted, and I, I can't imagine the amount of force that it takes to, to snap a tree, and there were plenty of those, but to, to actually lift it from the ground was just truly impressive. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. There is this beautiful description of the glory of God displayed in the splendor and the brilliance of nature. But as I looked at that tree, that uprooted oak tree with its mangled roots just lying sideways, I was reminded that God's glory, while it is unsurpassingly beautiful in some respects, is also completely beautiful terrifying in others. Psalm 29. 
Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. There is certainly splendor, but there is also terror wrapped up in the glory of God. But I bet none of us looked around at the wreckage that we were seeing and said, wow, gosh, God sure is glorious. So I'm excited that we're gonna be spending these uh, next three weeks talking about God's glory because I think it can be a, a very nebulous concept, but I think understanding it more fully will actually have a, a, an impact on our relationship with God, our relationship with other people. And, 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 and I know you might be thinking, great, a, a sermon series about glory. Here's three weekends of my life I can never get back. Talk to me about love, talk to me about sin, something that I know what to do with at the end of a sermon, but just stick with me, if you will, for a few more minutes and, and, and allow me to persuade you that this matters. And if I don't, you can continue to not very discreetly check your phones for Duke Energy and OUC updates. We talk about glory. We talk about glory in some very diverse ways. We talk about glory in the, the realm of competition, geopolitical competition, the waging and winning of wars. We talk about winning glory in battle. We talk about glory in sports. Uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh where it's perfectly acceptable to come into work sporting black and gold face paint, just keeping it classy. I think in, in athletics, glory is even more appealing because unlike some, some modern warfare, it's very, it's very black and white who the enemy is. It's always clear who the enemy is. The enemy is always the New England Patriots, always. <laughs> and if you're from New England, it's the Cowboys. That's acceptable too. In athletics, you can bask in the glory of your win without feeling guilty because no one actually got hurt. I think of glory in this capacity as a, as a synonym for, for, for fame or negatively infamy. Then we talk about glory in the sense of giving glory or receiving, like getting credit, getting, giving someone else the credit, getting the credit, um, glory given and taken. I realized when I started writing this that, I, <laughs> that apparently when I use the word glory, I use it almost exclusively in some form of hyperbole. Like when we got our power back, I said that getting air conditioning, having air conditioning again was glorious. So, so glory is a word... We all know, we all know the word glory, but I think when you try to pin us down, it's, it's, it's difficult for us to actually define it, uh, like love or spirituality or on fleek. And then in the arena of faith, the word takes on a completely different meaning than even these common uses. The, 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 the glory of the Lord is something that exists regardless of whether or not we give him glory like credit. It's something that exists that he doesn't have to win like victory. It just is. In the Gospel of John, as Jesus prepares his followers for his crucifixion, he prays a prayer and he prays first that God would be glorified and then he prays for his followers and then he goes on. Starting in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. 
May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me, have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. This is God's word. Jesus uses this word glory and he says that he's given glory to his followers and he wants them to be with him in his glory, to see his glory, to share it. But glory is also the brilliance of the sun. It's also the power that uprooted that oak tree. So, so, so what is it? How do we define this idea of glory? Theologian Herman Bavink writes, the glory of the Lord is the splendor and brilliance that is inseparably associated with all of God's attributes his self-revelation in nature and grace. And this was helpful to me because what he's saying here is that God's, go so, so God has many attributes, right? Love, mercy, joy, peace, uh, omnipotence, jealousy. He has all these attributes. But the glory of the Lord isn't just one more attribute. It is the sum of all of his attributes together. Like the, the sun is the sum of its heat and its light and its mass. And the glory of the Lord isn't just the sum of his attributes, but the degree to which his attributes are superior to all other attributes of the same name. Yes, the sun is radiant, but God's radiance is so glorious that by comparison, the sun is dark. Yes, man can be wise, but, but, but God's wisdom is so glorious that by comparison, man is foolish. It's everything about God. His goodness, his love, his mercy made manifest God's glory is God on display. One of the Hebrew words for glory is kavod. When, when the Hebrew scholars began translating the Hebrew Bible into Greek, what's now known as the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, they had to choose a word that was roughly equivalent to kavod. And for this, they chose doxa. This is where we get the word doxology, like the song we sang. But this original word, um, and, and that's the word that, that Jesus is using in this prayer, but this original word kavod, is interesting, um, it, it, it was originally a military term and it meant battle armaments. And it eventually b it took on the meaning of something which is heavy, much like a battle armament would be. Kavod meant something of immense weight, something heavy, something significant. So here's why I think that this matters for us on a practical level, because I would argue that all of us, every single person in here, and the way that we live our lives and the choices we make to some degree or another are seeking significance. We are seeking to have weight before men. We're seeking to have our lives mean something. How can we live if they don't? And if glory means weight or significance, then yes, we are certainly seeking glory. And we do all manner of good and bad things in order to pursue that glory. I think glory is terribly practical. Obedience is a glory issue. Do I give weight to my desires or to the desires that God has for me? How we interact with culture, our opinions are a glory issue. Will I, will I orient my moral values and views around the weightiest person, the center, God, or around myself and what I choose to believe to be true? Choosing poorly in this arena isn't just uh, theoretically damaging. It can be absolutely catastrophic for our hearts. 
1633, the physicist Galileo was ordered to turn himself into the authorities for holding the belief that the earth revolves around the sun. And, and after his trial and his sentencing, they wrote, uh, we pronounce, judge, and declare that you, the said Galileo, have rendered yourself vehemently suspected by the holy office of heresy, that is, of having believed and held the doctrine which is false and contrary to the holy and divine scriptures, that the sun is the center of the world and that the earth is not the center of the world. See, the church dogmatically adhered to this idea that the earth was the center of everything, that we were the center of everything. They go on. We order that by public edict, the book of dialogues of Galileo Galilei be prohibited. We condemn thee to prison and enjoin on thee that for the space of three years... Thou shalt recite once a week the seven penitential psalms. Incidentally, the seven penitential psalms are all about um, asking for God's forgiveness, but Galileo was telling the truth. And so it's ridiculous. It's this absurdity, like, like the 17th century version of Harry Potter writing, I must not tell lies in Dorge Umbridge's, Doris Umbridge's cat lady office. Ptolemy or Ptolemy, if you hate silent letters, had another system which um, put the earth at the center of the universe. And he used this, set, this system to actually calculate planetary positions, and he could, but, but with errors as much as 30 degrees. And, and I don't have to tell you that on a cosmic level, an error of 30 degrees is a lot. It's like at least 50 miles. You think I'm an idiot. So it's light years. So, so he invented this thing called the equant, um, which was like a, 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 like a thing you added to the calculations, but each planet had its own equant, so they were all different, and, and he had to do all of this extra work. It helped, but you really had to do a lot of complicated extra work to arrive at the conclusion that you wanted. It was logical gymnastics. It was bad math. You see, when we, when we orient our lives around a false center, when we orient our, our, our moral values, our hearts, the affections of our hearts, when we orient our lives around a false center, we will end up way, way off course. And if we choose to not recognize the true center in order to sleep at night, we will have to invent dubious justifications for our choices and the things that we believe that essentially amount to bad math. We will have to do moral gymnastics to come to the conclusions that we wish were true. It is no good for our hearts to, to, to pretend like what we think or what we feel holds more weight than God. It's no good for our hearts to orient ourselves around a false center. We will end up so far off course that maybe we won't be able to find our way home. And it's not just no good for our hearts when we do it. It's no good for the hearts of the people that God has given us to love. Jesus prays in verse 22. I have given them the glory, the weight that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus says he's given us the glory that God gave him, the weight, the import, but, but, but why? So that we may be as one as he and the Father are one, so that we may be brought to complete unity. We become unified when Jesus allows us to share in his glory, his weight, his importance, because what he effectively does is make himself the most important thing about us. Not our sin, not even our talents, just himself. 
in us. Jesus alone is our center. Verse 22, I have given them the glory, the weight that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. See, when the most important thing about us is him, then we cannot be in competition with one another any longer. When the most important thing about us is him, then we look around and cannot help but see that we are all standing equal at the foot of the cross. That we are all anchored by the same gravity, that we are all held together by the gravity of his grace. Verse 23, I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, then the world will know that you sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. When we reflect God's glory as his unified body, when we allow the most important thing about us to be him, the world looks at us and they discover that maybe there is a different way to live. Maybe, maybe it's, it's more than just trying to get to the top no matter what the cost we live in a moment in history and in a culture that tells us that, that, that we are absolutely the center of the universe, that we should have whatever we want, whenever we want it. And as a result, we've made just about every good gift in this world into an addictive substance because our hearts were never designed to be the center of the universe. Our feelings were never designed to be an accurate measure of reality. Our hearts aren't meant to be the center, but, but before the fall in paradise, Adam and Eve lived in paradise, and even then, the tree of, uh, of, of the knowledge of good and evil was off limits to them. Why? Because even in paradise, we were never meant to have it all. We are not the center of the universe, and, and when we believe we are, things get all twisted up inside of us and ultimately outside of us too. When I was in high school, my senior year, they announced that they were doing a, the musical Little Shop of Horrors. And, and I'd never auditioned for a musical before, but I'd seen the show and it was so cool. And I thought, I've got to audition for this show. So I was so excited about it. Audition day came and I'd been practicing all week. I was ready to audition. But here's the thing. I didn't just want to be in the show. I wanted to be the star. And so all week, I'd been practicing all of the songs sung by the leading lady, Audrey. And I was so sure that when I went into that audition, not only would I have the role, but I'd be launching my Broadway career because it was going to be so awesome. And, and if you haven't seen the show, here's a few things that you should know about Audrey, the lead that I was auditioning for. First, she's pretty tall. I, I have to, if my husband's not home, bring the ottoman into the kitchen so that I can reach you know, the bowls on the top shelf for cereal. Uh, she's pretty thin, she's pretty blonde, she wears a lot of leopard print spandex, and she has this sweet, high, soft, timid soprano voice like, like a tiny little cherub with no self-esteem. I'm sorry, doctor. <laughs> this was not the role for me. But I wanted it so badly, and I thought the show was so cool, so, so I, I tried and tried, and they posted the cut sheet, and I saw my name on it, and so I traced it along to the role that I had, and I had been cast for Audrey 2. Now again, for those of you who have not seen the show, Audrey 2 is the name of the man-eating plant from outer space that comes down and eats the town and eats Audrey 1, the woman that I was auditioning for. So it wasn't exactly what I was hoping for. But as it turned out, uh, the, the girl who played Audrey was spectacular. The, 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 the guy who uh, played Seymour could not have sounded more like Rick Moranis, which was great for the show, but like real unfortunate for his real life. And shockingly, <laughs> 
I was perfectly suited, apparently, to play a carnivorous man-eating plant from outer space. We, we won all the awards in the most con competitive uh, shows in our tri-state area. It was really exciting. But what would have happened if the person who made the perfect man-eating plant from outer space would have been cast as a sweet leading lady? What would have happened if I had forced myself into a role that I was not made for? The show would have been terrible. We have a part, we do, we have a part to play in the larger story that God is painting across the canvas of human history, but, but here's the truth, we were never meant to play the lead. So we have to choose. Do we embrace the true center? Do we play our part in God's larger story with its eternally happy ending or do we choose to be a player in a tragedy just so we get to be the star? There's a trick that's being played on all of us by the enemy because there is in fact a very good reason, a very biblical reason even that you, that me, that each of us at times have this desire to be the center of the universe. And I think it's important we understand that reason so that the enemy cannot exploit it against us. Jesus says it right here in his prayer. I have given them the glory you gave me. I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. We desire glory, at least in part, because we were made for it. You were made for glory. It's written on the fabric of your being. It's not wrong for you to desire glory. You were made for it. We were made in the image of God, the most glorious image that has ever been or will ever be. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. We were made for glory for weight, for significance. God has set eternity in the heart of man. By design, we need to know that we matter to someone. There's a reason that the words of condemnation at the final judgment are, I never knew you. There's a reason that, that eternal punishment is being eternally separated from God, to be utterly insignificant, to be cast out, to matter to no one any longer. We need to know we matter. And so, and so we have this tendency to, to, to keep trying to prove that we matter, but the ways that we keep trying to prove it keep making matters worse. Social media is an addictive substance. We will spend hours trying to get just the right picture to, to, to show the world how fabulous we are, how much fun we're having, but, but it's a lie. We're not fabulous. We're, we're desperate for affirmation. Or maybe it's, you know, being huddled up in your room until 11 o'clock at night returning emails because, because you're such a hard worker, but you're huddled up alone because your, your marriage came second to hard work. Maybe it's constantly barraging your adult children with advice they don't need about hurricane prep or otherwise because you are just not sure you know who you are if they don't need you. Maybe it's jumping from relationship to relationship because those first few months of infatuation and passion are, are the closest thing you've ever felt to being worshipped. These are false centers and they are killing us. 
They're sucking us into an orbit where there is no air to breathe and no water to drink. Yes, we, we were made for glory, yes, but never to absorb it. We were made to reflect it so that the lost and the lonely can see that reflection and it will show them where to look for the source. We are all drawn to false centers because they're reminiscent of a thing that we are meant to have, but they're not the thing. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Don't embrace a false center not outside of yourself, but not inside of yourself either. And this will continue to be our temptation because yes, we were made for glory, but again, not to absorb it, to reflect it. Where, where are you absorbing glory that isn't meant for you to keep? We're like little mirrors and we reflect the image of the glory of God, but, but we're always tempted by that very first sin, right? The sin of self-sufficiency to be entirely our own. We're always tempted not to be mirrors that reflect the object of, of glory. We want to be the object of glory ourselves. We wanna be the center. We want people to, to, to be impressed with us for things that are entirely our own. We want people to say to us, oh, you're so smart, you're so talented. We don't want them to say, oh, you're so meek, you're so long-suffering. Why? Because we think the good looks and the talent, we think, we think, that's all, that we, think we created that. We think that's entire, like we worked for it. You don't work for that bone structure. Look, most of us, most of us, not all of us, were born into households where we had parents who had enough leisure time to read to us and enough money to send us to school and whose biology came together in such a perfect way as to give you those cheekbones. And, and, and that's why you're smart, and that's why people like your face. And I know that's probably irritating to hear if you're smart or you're talented or you're wealthy, but listen, it's true. And, and I'm not saying that hard work has nothing to do with it. I'm saying that the ability to work hard is a gift. And this is a, a fact that we are so prone to forgetting that God reminds it, us of it in no uncertain terms. In Deuteronomy, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Not he who gives you the wealth, he who gives you the ability to produce it. We retain our jobs because he created the hands and the feet that work them. We have friendships because he has given us hearts capable of love. We eat because he designed soil to grow crops and chickens to lay eggs the very air we breathe, our beloved Lord first spoke into existence. Quite literally, without his word, we would suffocate. The truth is there is nothing glorious about us apart from what reflects our God. And I think we know that. I think deep down we know it when we're not so busy or so wrapped up in our own little universes. I think we know that it's better to orbit around the true center, to be anchored 
to, to, to be held down by the gravity of God, to matter because of whose we are, not who we are. We know. But I think the trouble is the, the, the experience that we just all had this past week. It is frightening to submit to the glory of God. It can be Psalm 19 beautiful, but it can also be Psalm 29 terrifying. It twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. The glory of God is a very serious thing. In the Old Testament, the glory of God would kill a man. It would actually kill you if you saw it. So, so you know, Yahweh couldn't like jump out from behind the altar during surprise parties because then everyone would die. It's a very serious thing to be in the presence of the glory of God. And I think it's serious because the closer that we get to his heaviness, the more weightless we feel the more we see our own inadequacies, that our beauty by comparison is ugly, that our wisdom by comparison is foolish, that our best intentions are actually selfish and self-serving. I experienced this in the midst of the hurricane. When you have no control over anything, over your house, over your own life, when something as common as wind can end your existence, it is a very serious thing to be in the presence of God's glory. It strips away everything about us that might seem sufficient. And we find with perfect clarity that we are indeed just dust and breath. And yet Jesus prays for us. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be as one as we are one. There was a time that we could not stand before the glory of God and not be crushed by it and not have it kill us. That is until the day that he allowed his glory to be crushed by us. When the glory of the Lord took on flesh and made his dwelling among us and made peace between us and our dangerously glorious God. And so now you and I can stand before the glory of the Lord, we can share in the glory of the Lord because in the cross, in the cross, all attributes of God are on display in such a way that man can look on them and not perish. Grace and truth, mercy and justice, love and jealousy, omnipotence and humility, radiance and meekness. Jesus is our center. And when we believe in him for the forgiveness of our sins, for the lordship of our lives, we share in his glory. We are no longer weightless. We become tethered to the eternal. So we have a choice. Do we absorb glory? Will we absorb it or will we re reflect it? So people who see us will know where to turn their eyes to see the source. We can try to keep it for ourselves and then ultimately lose it or we can give it back to Jesus and then ultimately keep it. This has implications on how we live our lives, on how we order the affections of our heart. And that doesn't mean you have to be weird, you know? If, if, if you give a killer presentation at work and, and your boss says, great job, Davey, you know, you don't have to be like, it's all the Lord, Gary, it's all the Lord. First, because, you know, maybe Gary's just being nice and you're, and you're just giving God the credit for what Gary sees to be a terrible, terrible accident. And second, <laughs> this is an inward posture of the heart more than it is an outward 
gesture. Don't get me wrong, there, there will be times when, when the Holy Spirit prompts you to, to, to bear witness to the author of your talents. But for the most part, this is, this is an inward position of your heart. Glorifying God in all we do, as, or as Paul writes, eating and drinking and doing everything for the glory of God is first and foremost an inward posture of the heart. It is not a bombastic declaration. It's not an esoteric ritual. It is nothing more supernatural than gratitude. Because when we give gratitude, in gratitude, we recognize that we know we are not the reason that we are so awesome. And maybe the only people who know that you've given God the glory are you and him. And you know what? That's okay. You might not tell anyone, but chances are good you're also not going to be a jerk about it at work. You're not going to rub it in people's faces. You're not going to lord it over them. You're not going to compete with them to their detriment. You're going to be kind. You're going to help them succeed. You're going to celebrate their wins as though they were your own. And that in itself will speak volumes even if you do not. It will make people curious. And curious people ask questions. And when they do, then you can tell them the truth. That it's all the Lord, Gary. It's all the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you again for the opportunity to be here together this morning. Lord, forgive us for all of the times that we try in so many ways to be the center of our own universes. Lord, help us to, to recognize that we are reflections of you and that all good things come from you, that every good gift comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights with whom there is no change. Lord, I pray that you would allow us as we see your glory more clearly to allow it to penetrate us and that the selfishness that we feel, the self-centeredness would fall away from our eyes like scales. Lord, let us seek to reflect your goodness in all we do so that in reflecting you, we might share in your glory and point people toward the source of all glory forever and ever. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.